touch. Well, good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year to all of you. Pray that the Lord will bless us, go on to bless us as he's continued to do so in the past the past year. Though there have been many things in the past year that have caused us a great deal of consternation and concern. Nonetheless, God is sovereign over all of it, and we uh, will see his glory uh, manifested in his good time, whether uh, through good or ill, as we deem it here in the affairs of our nation and world. We're going to um, continue on in our study of the book of Hosea. So if you'll turn to Hosea chapter 6, chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago with verse 4. Now I'm going to read uh, chapter 6, verse 4, on down through chapter 7. And verse uh, 16. So we're going to read the remainder of 6 and all of chapter 7. But this passage now that begins here at verse 4 actually runs on through chapter 13 and verse 3. Now we're obviously not going to cover all of that uh, today. uh, But uh, today and probably uh, next week we'll take a look at highlights through that section as all of it is related to this theme that is repeated a couple of times in this passage of, of uh, faithfulness like a morning cloud. And we'll take a look at that and what the, the Lord is getting at in that phrase uh, as we go along today and as I said, probably next week as well. <clears throat> but chapter 6, verse 4, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's holy word, please Join me as I begin reading there and read on to the end of chapter 7. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal all Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes in their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. 
for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to Yahweh their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So now we are entering into the meat, the heart of this book of Hosea. We've spent a fair bit of time looking at the, the overture to all of this and in, as, uh, in the early chapters. And for those of you that have been, uh, been here for those early chapters, some of the themes that we saw there, um, you can see them being uh, expanded upon here in the reading that we just had. And it, would, it will go on to be uh, further explored in the coming chapters. Israel, like Hosea's uh, wife Gomer, was unfaithful uh, to their God, to their Lord. They were going after other idols. They were worshiping false gods and ultimately really worshiping themselves and going after the things that brought them uh, sensual, temporal, fleshly pleasure uh, at the expense of everyone else, we really see that explored here, especially on the part of the leadership, the priests and so on, called murderers and adulterers, as they took advantage of the people from their positions of authority. Uh, it's a horrible thing uh, that is described here, but one, unfortunately, that we see uh, lived out in the life of the church throughout uh, the centuries at different times and places and by various individuals who use their position as a means of self-advancement and and were not careful to follow after God's commands but rather succumbed to the the lure of sin in the world around them. And now we come to this we had a little we had a little reprieve did we not last week we saw the Lord's promise uh, that restoration would uh, would be coming, that revival would be coming. But before that can happen, before the refreshing of the Lord as the spring rains come, we have a further description of the sin that must be dealt with first. 
Now, it, it, this, is, this phrase, as I mentioned to you, uh, about the morning cloud. You see that there in verse 4. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. God has just said to his people, the, just in the prior statement, that he's going to come like uh, the, the showers and the spring rains. Now, when uh, we used to live in Tacoma, uh, in that area, Tacoma and Portland, uh, years ago, this, uh, this uh, statement about the spring rains, <laughs> um, I remember one, one winter and spring of, of, of a period of 94 days of straight precip. No, and uh, believe me, we were all really, really, really tired of it. Um, <laughs> uh, long before that, the record was hit. Uh, we, were, we were tired of it. We've been glad to see the clouds go away. Um, I, I remember, um, and if any of you have ever lived on that side of the Cascades and listened to the weather reports, the, the phrase, sun breaks. Anybody heard of that phrase before? A little term, we talk about sun breaks coming. And I remember when we first moved into the area, we thought, well, that's kind of an odd thing. Didn't have to live there very long until we understood exactly what that meant. It, the, the, the clouds would part for just a second, the sun would break through, and everybody throw off their jackets and umbrellas and run out in shorts and go, ah, yes, and then the clouds would come right back. Um, when, we, when we think about the clouds going away, in our context, that often brings us a sign of hope that we might see some sun on a given day. Uh, what, what, what this is talking about here, about the morning clouds, is the idea that as the, the sun comes out, the clouds are temporary. They will go away. And we tend to think of that as a positive thing because we love the warmth and the sun and all of that. But here, it's not a positive not a positive at all again it's in the context of the lord coming as the refresher as the spring rains to water the earth he is speaking these words in the midst of an agriculturally based society um, and in a in in a region of the world that is generally not like the pacific northwest but is very arid and dry and they depended very much upon regular rains to come and to just be teased with a little bit of rain. For the Lord to say, I'm going to come as a refreshing to you, but your faithfulness is like a morning cloud that goes away. The Lord is playing on this image. He says, I'm going to, my refreshing will be, your, will be uh, real, will be deep, will be sufficient to help you grow. Your response, on the other hand, is temporary, fleeting, and at the first time, the heat of the sun comes out, you're gone. This is not a positive. Israel's faithfulness is compared to morning clouds. You know, the last thing we should want is for our faithfulness to be like the morning clouds. Because that's no faithfulness at all. That's no real blessing at all. It's just a, a tease for we who are supposed to be a blessing to the Lord and a blessing to creation <clears throat> to uh, be faithful when it's convenient, when there's no heat of the sun to test us. Um, 
but as soon as that heat comes, as soon as the challenge comes, as soon as the testing comes, uh, our faithfulness dissipates just like that, the mist of the morning clouds, the dew that goes away early. Morning cloud faithfulness, sad to say though, is all too often our kind of faithfulness. And it's characterized by several things that we see here in the passage I read and then also in some of the other chapters on through 13. Now, I am not, because of the, there's a lot of repetition of themes throughout this section. So I'm not going to, uh, from this point, I've been fairly involved in the text, uh, uh, verse by verse, or at least section by section, starting here and working on through uh, this next major section. I'm going to hit highlights that capture everything that's going on in it, um, because otherwise it would be, it would be uh, very repetitive. There's a lot of repetition for emphasis in these sections, so uh, hopefully we'll pull out the themes as we go along. But uh, take a look at um, chapter 8, for example, uh, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> See, uh, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of Yahweh because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. A bunch of statements strung together that you might have to read it through two or three times to figure out, okay, what's the flow of this? What's, what's uh, the Lord saying through the prophet Hosea? Morning clouds, sometimes when I come down uh, from the house uh, heading into town, um, there can be a thick fog in the valley. Those morning, and, and uh, again, it's our, uh, the way we think, we come down the valley and it's pretty and everything, but we kind of wish it'd go away so we'd have the sun. But I want you to think about morning clouds or that morning fog. It's often thick, hard to see through, right? Morning clouds are thick. And... I have a little play on words here for myself uh, as well. You know, when we talk about somebody being thick or dense, basically it's hard to get through, uh, get something through to them. Well, morning cloud faithfulness can be that way. We can be very self-deceived and we can really be thick when it comes to uh, coming before the Lord. Take a look at... Uh, the characteristics here. First of all, though, in verse one, you have that uh, word, they have transgressed my covenant. This is uh, the idea of crossing over the covenant or ignoring it. They've acted as if it wasn't there. They're going on in blissful ignorance and deliberate blissful ignorance that, well, you know, we've got this covenant with God and its implications, but we're just not... We're not living it. We're not living it. Morning clouds are thick. And you'll notice there's a theme here in this section particularly. They're thick with hypocrisy. They're thick with hypocrisy. That hypocrisy shows, it up in a, shows itself in a few ways. The first one there is, so, is seen in verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. 
Think about that for a minute in light of the indictment that God has already given to them in the earlier chapters that we've looked at in just the recent past. What did God say was characteristic of Israel? He said, you don't know me. And not only do you not know me, it's not, it's not like, well, it isn't your fault, you'd really like to, and so on. But you don't, not only do you not know me, you don't have any interest in knowing me. And yet Israel is sitting there saying, Lord, we, Israel, hey, we know you. That's about as thick of hypocrisy as you can get. They didn't have any experiential knowledge of him. They weren't walking in obedience to him. They had uh, the, all the head knowledge about what God had said regarding who he was and what he expected of them. And they went through the lip service and the motions, but they did not live as if they actually knew God at all. And in fact, uh, it, the Lord says, you don't know me. You may think you do, you may declare that you do, but you don't. And here, that's repeated again in verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we know you. The word know here, a little bit of, of, uh, of review and an expansion on what we looked at before. This is not all that complicated of a word in terms of, you know, there's not some great mystery about it or anything. It's used in much the same way that we would use the word know, whether we're gaining knowledge, we're, we're, we're figuring things out, we're learning of or about something, um, there's observation that's in view here, discrimination that's in view, as in being able to discriminate uh, between de details and that sort of thing. Um, but it boils down to knowing by experience, and we've looked at that concept before. So that, that knowledge issues forth into skill and ability and relationship. It's a very practical word. It's not just about pie-in-the-sky theory that most people uh, have in their minds whenever they hear the word theology, for example, or doctrine. This is about knowing God where the rubber meets the road. How do I live um, and as a result of my knowledge of Him? So even in the most intimate of, of relationships, Gain, knowledge gained by the senses, this word has the range to cover all of that. Israel is claiming that they know God intimately and personally, in spite of his declaration that they don't. That was in chapter 4, verse 1. And their actions to the contrary, um, look in the context. Um, they've transgressed my covenant, they rebelled against my law. They have, verse 3, they have spurned the good. And because of all of that, there will, there will be judgment. We looked at that before. The enemy will pursue him. This, repeat, this is repeated in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7, um, but stated in a little different way. Uh, the implications of this word are seen there in chapter 11. Though they call to the Most High. There's that idea repeated of, they, to me they cry. Though they call to the Most High, 
None at all. Exalt him. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Because, I mean, when you first look at that, wouldn't you think, well, if they're calling to the Most High, and they're calling even him by his, by his name, aren't they exalting him in some way? So, what is the Lord saying? This ought to get us thinking very soberly, brothers and sisters, about our worship before the Lord. Already today, we have called upon his name multiple times. We've lifted up his name in praise, in hymns, multiple times. We've um, probably this day, as we've talked with each other, um, said something like, well, praise the Lord, or uh, um, you know, God be thanked for this answer to prayer or this providence. You know, God isn't saying to them, you don't ever talk about me. You don't ever say thank you. You don't ever say you're great. You don't call upon the most high. That implies they're using titles that are descriptive of him. No, they're doing all that stuff. All the stuff we do. And he says, but none of them exalt What does that mean? And what does that mean for us? Are we like morning clouds that are happy to praise the Lord and lift up his voice when it's comfortable and convenient? When everyone around us is going to be quick to come alongside and say, yep, isn't that great? But we uh, tend to be a little more tight-lipped in our praise when we're around the heathen. Or when we come to the come into the sanctuary here, and when we're among each, among you know, in with, in and with others, um, in company with others, with others, our you know we we do our praises and our requests, and we're thankful and so on and so forth. But the rest of our time, the rest of our lives, we live it as if God wasn't really present and didn't really have something to say about every part of our lives. The decisions that we make, the entertainments that we go, we go through, all of that stuff. This hits us hard, does it not? Morning clouds can be thick. They look substantial, but they're thick with hypocrisy. And in this case, hypocritical talk. Chapter 8 and verse 11 speaks... Um, uh, to another aspect of this hypocrisy, and that is, I'm calling this hypocritical zeal. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they've become to him altars for sinning. That seems like, that's kind of redundant. And yet, what is Ephraim doing? Lots of altars. Now, look, that isn't, I mean, underneath this is the implication that really there should only be in God's economy at the time, there should have only been one altar, right, at Jerusalem. But Ephraim, they're out there, they're putting altars everywhere. And whether it's altars to false gods, 
or altars like in the case of Jeroboam, who, you know, erected a, a god in Samaria, a, an altar and a temple in Samaria, and said, you know, here Israel, come worship here. Here's your gods. Whether they were saying these these altars are to their Yahweh God or to the gods of the nations. The point is that they were really zealous. They got all kinds of altars there that they put up. And we can, it reminds me of many here in this area that love to talk about, well, my church is the woods. My church is this. My church is out on the lake. My church is da da da. It's like, it's not a church. Quit trying to pretend it's a church. It's just you don't want to be in church. And the fact of the matter is the Lord calls you to be in company with his people, so quit making mistakes uh, or, or excuses um, to not be there. I want to be zealous. See, you know, I'm, I'm going after God, though. And, um, yeah, that's what pagans do. They go after gods, and they find altars everywhere around. They, they, they see gods everywhere. It's called pantheism. The problem is, that as zealous as they are, and they're very zealous, um, they're ignoring the one true and living God who created all things and called everyone to account to Him and Him alone. And we think, okay, great. Well, I'm not a pagan and I'm not an idolater and so on. Where do you, where and what do you worship? Where and what do you find, and I'm using these terms deliberately, where and where, where and in whom and in what do you find God? The things that govern your life, the things that you set your course by, the people or the ideas or the practices that, that are meaningful to you. I don't know how many times in the fine arts world uh, of course, uh, when I was involved in that heavily, a lot of the work that we did, in a particular sense, it was choral music. A lot of it was sacred music. And we would be singing these incredible sacred texts and this marvelous music in uh, these uh, gloriously decked out uh, church venues and so on. And... <clears throat> You know, people would come not because they were there to worship the one true and living God. They were there to have a spiritual experience as well as a cultural experience. But many would come up to us after those concerts and go, oh, that was such a spiritual thing tonight. Or maybe you've heard people talk about, you know, I'm a spiritual person. It's like, well, there's an element of truth in that. Yes, you are. You you possess a spirit. It's fallen, but you possess a spirit. Yeah. Um, all of that is, you know, people can get really excited about that and pursue it and spend their lives pursuing it. I finally quit the fine arts scene in Portland because it was just music itself became the idol. Music is going to save us. Music's going to save our culture. Music's going to save our, save mankind. Music is, you know, if we just all just get into music, then it will take care of all the world's problems. And I'm li listening to this, not only in some of the stuff that they started 
programming as far as the music goes, but itself goes, but just even in the way things were talked about and so on, it's like, um, this is idolatry. You're erecting another God that mankind, by his own efforts, just singing happy music about kumbaya, let's all get together, is going to bring peace to the world and we're going to fix all of man's problems. It's idolatry. Oh, it's zealous. <laughs> we practiced enough. I'll tell you what. It's, yeah, they're zealous. But they're altars for sinning. There are altars erected apart from God's command so that we can go and feel, try to feel good about ourselves in seeking out our version of God and our version of what his spirituality, uh, what he, uh, his spiritual requirements are of us instead of our fake spirituality that I just feel really warm and fuzzy about something and call that spiritual. But those morning clouds are thick. It's hard to see through the cloud of zeal. You think about the prophets of Baal that Elijah was dealing with on Mount Carmel. They were pretty zealous, weren't they? To the point of cutting themselves with knives and all of their dancing and their screeching and hollering and all of the things that they were doing to try to get their God's attention. They were zealous. But you know, you, to one, in one respect, you look at those that have no knowledge of God, of Yahweh, and go, okay. I mean, we can feel sympathy and a desire to help correct that. That kind of idolatry and sin is bad enough. But when you claim to know the one true and living God and go and practice this stuff, that's pretty thick hypocrisy. And that's what Israel is being accused of here. And this talk and the zeal ends up in hypocritical activity, which we've already kind of hinted at or actually stated. In chapter 6 and verse 6, the Lord says, I desire steadfast love. And this is the term covenant faithfulness. I desire you to be faithful to me and not sacrifice the knowledge of God. There's that word again. Rather than burnt offerings. And in chapter 8 and verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but, the, but Yahweh does not accept them. And he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins and send them off into bondage. You know, um, you remember King Saul, right? You talked about he went and sacrificed because he was trying to, he had a big victory. They weren't sacrificing things and so on, but he was disobedient to God. And Samuel came up and rebuked him. And, and Saul is going, hey, well, look, you know, we did this, we did that. We sacrificed all these things. Isn't this great? Samuel said to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. We need to take seriously what God says in his word and obey it 
and walk in covenant with Him. That is what exalts Him. Not just lip service. Not just singing really grand sounding hymns. Going through the motions just doesn't cut it. So morning clouds, you know, they're thick. We're going to pick up uh, uh, next week uh, uh, with uh, verse 7 of chapter 11. If you want to take over, take over there, uh, take a quick look over there. Uh, that verse says, My people are bent <clears throat> on turning away from me, or as uh, I think the New King James has it, uh, um, backsliding from me. And I want you to ponder on this thought for a minute. Uh, morning clouds are thick. And morning clouds are also, to use a little turn of phrase, morning clouds are all wet. So they're all wet. We'll talk about what that means and what they're soaked with. And it's not pretty. So uh, I kind of hate to leave this on this heavy note. But let's, um, over this coming week, take this passage and, and not just what we've read, but read through this entire section, through chapter 13 and verse 3. Read through this section and look at how Israel is characterized as those who are going through the motions, who are hypocritically calling out to God, trying to uh, say that they praise Him and love Him while they are serving everybody else besides Him. And let's take a close look at ourselves, examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, and examine ourselves as to our own faithfulness. And if our faithfulness will stand up to the heat of testing better than these morning clouds. I rather think that as we go through this, this careful and prayerful self-examination, that we will find much to repent of and to cry out to our Lord, Lord, um, we believe, help our unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage, as heavy as it is, as hard as it is to, to look at and begin to make application to ourselves. Lord, help us to do that. Let us not have faithfulness that's like that of morning clouds that dissipates quickly in the heat of the day. But Lord, I pray that we would know your refreshing rains. We would know the blessing of, of the, the, the storm, as it were, the rain that is steady and soaks the earth and replenishes it. Lord, we long to have that replenishment from you to us, and we long to refresh your heart with ongoing genuine exaltation that shows itself in obedience and faithfulness to the covenant that you've made with us through Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Truly, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.